Hi, I'm Jan. And I'm Lynn. Welcome to the Lamplighters podcast. Lamplighters is a community that encourages women to grow in our faith through the study of God's Word. We are grateful to be on the journey with you this year as we travel through the Bible, following the stories of some of the women who have impacted our faith. Now, last week, we had a wonderful start in this book of Esther. We got a lot of background, and we saw Esther step into the role God had created for her, the queen who would intercede for and save the Jews. We saw the fall of Haman and the rise of Mordecai. So what's what's left of the story? Well, it's the rest of the story. Yeah. Uh, we pick it up in chapter 8, and this chapter could be called the chapter of reversals. Okay. Um, after the chapter of growth that Kristen said yes. last week. Yes. Okay. God has sort of silently engineered several reversals, all the while staying in the background, right? Mm-hmm. We, it starts off saying that same day. What day is that? That's the day of Esther's second banquet and Haman's downfall and execution. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it's been about 70 days have passed since uh, Haman declared the destruction of the Jews. Uh-huh. But only five days about have passed since Esther asked Mordecai and the Jews to fast for her. So once she was spiritually prepared and had a plan, she didn't hesitate. And the action starts to move very, very swiftly. One thing that we might not know is that in ancient Persia, the assets of a condemned person reverted to the king. So Xerxes got all of Haman's wealth and property, but... Shock reversal. He gave it to Esther. <laughs> yeah, that is a which shock. Is, it really was. All of a sudden, she is a very rich woman in her own right, and she's not dependent on the king's financial whims or on Mordecai. And that's a real shift. Um, another one was re- her revealing her relationship with Mordecai resulted in the king elevating Esther's uncle to the position of prime minister, which had once been held by Haman. <laughs> Another reversal. So everything Haman had plotted and schemed and manipulated for was now given as a gift to Mordecai. Mm -hmm. So this is a real role reversal for them. Esther is now the source of blessing and wealth and empowerment for her uncle instead Mm -hmm. of vice versa. Mm -hmm. Okay, but they still had a problem. Mm -hmm. The edict of the king couldn't ever be reversed, ever. Oh. So Haman's Evil plans to destroy the Jews was still in effect, right? Now, here we have something very interesting. Esther's previous appeals to the king, her audiences with him, were very courtly and proper and restrained. But this second appeal she makes to him is very different. Mm -hmm. We find her at his feet, Mm. weeping and begging him to do something he can't do, which is to reverse a prior edict. The passion of her appeal reveals to us and to King Xerxes the importance of her ask, right? Mm -hmm. And so once again, we see Esther putting her own life on the line. Xerxes is proud, he's unpredictable, he's violent, he's vengeful, and she is asking him to publicly reverse a decision, to break the law, and to suffer the humiliation and loss of face in the process. Yeah, his word wouldn't mean as much. Right. How likely is that? Yeah, not. (laughs) But... This is the most startling reversal of all. You know, not only had the autocrat of Persia, whose treasury was in dire need of funds after all those disastrous military campaigns, not only had he given away all of Haman's vast wealth to Esther, 
But he also gave her the power to do something about Haman's edict. Hmm. He handed over his signet ring. Mm. Now, in effect, that meant he changed his mind in public. Mm-hmm. What it really was is that Xerxes had a change of heart. Mm. So we can see God at work there. It reminds me of uh, Proverbs 21, 1 through 2. The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. Every man's way is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. Mm. And once again, we have God's sovereignty being in control of people and events, even when they don't acknowledge him, and even when God isn't obviously at work. And that, to me, is enormously encouraging because I have a lot of situations in my life where it's not obvious that God is at work. So I'm very (laughs) encouraged by that. Well, it is enormously encouraging. You know, so many times in life, it feels like the bad guys are winning and it is easy to get discouraged. And this is where our faith and obedience enter the picture. We aren't ever given the full story because that is God's to know. It's up to us to obey anyway. That's what the faith part is all about. When we believe that God is who he tells us he is, we can trust that he is in control and that he is using everything for his glory. And then it's a good thing that we don't know everything. Oh, yeah. You know, we would never get involved in this if we, if we right. did. But it is encouraging because there's no heart so hardened and no will so stubborn that God can't break through. Mm-hmm. No one, no one is beyond his reach. So we should yeah. never give up hope. Okay. Once given permission and the authority of King Xerxes, Mordecai and Esther sort of accelerate into hyperspeed mode. You know, they had to write a second decree that would offset but not contradict the original decree by Haman. Okay. It's something that will neutralize that first evil decree. And they followed along the text of Haman's decree hmm. in their proclamation. Mm-hmm. Basically, what Mordecai came up with is to give all Jews the right and authority to defend themselves. Mm. Now, the wording seems harsh because it's a reference to killing women and children. But remember, this decree is a mirror image of the original one written by Haman, Mm -hmm. which had no mercy involved. And Mm. it's a clear message to everyone. He said, if you try to exterminate the Jews, they are authorized and empowered by the king Mm. to fight back. Mm. So by courage and cleverness, Esther and Mordecai had leveled the playing field. And now they had nine months in which they had to inform and prepare the Jews to defend themselves. That was no small task, Mm -mm. given the size of the empire. So the Jews at this point went from mourning to celebrating, from being powerless to having power over their faith. Mm -hmm. And the result seems almost a foregone conclusion. Uh, D-Day arrived. But instead of Destruction Day, it turned out to be Deliverance Day. Mm. Now, the account sounds bloody because it was. Mm -hmm. 75,000 men, apparently, were killed in the rural areas, and 800 in Susa, plus Haman's 10 sons. Mm. Now, remember, just for perspective's sake, Haman was planning on slaughtering one million Jews. Yeah. So in comparison, this doesn't seem like much, but it's still— bloody. Mm -hmm. The other thing about the text that makes it clear, in fact, it repeats it three times, is the Jews took no plunder, Mm -hmm. and they didn't kill women and children. And that is emphasized. So why is that emphasized? 
we have to go back to that historical context in 1 Samuel. Saul had had been instructed by God to destroy the Amalekites, but remember he only partially obeyed and he left King Agav alive. Mm -hmm. He also took spoils of war for himself. As a result, Haman, the most famous of King Agag's descendants, was left to destroy all the Jews. Mm. In other words, the Jews were facing annihilation because of Saul's incomplete obedience, which Mm -hmm. is really disobedience, Mm -hmm. right? So they learned the lesson. And the Jews regarded this battle in, in the empire with their enemies as completing a divine command that Mm -hmm. had been given to Saul. Mm -hmm. It wasn't an opportunity for personal gain, so they didn't take spoils of war, Mm -hmm. and they didn't kill women and children. Mm. Wise. Okay. Battlefield report comes to Xerxes. He goes to Esther. Now notice that he went to Esther. That's another reversal. Mm -hmm. Uh, Reversing palace protocol. And he asked her if she wanted anything else. Now, this was a problem for me. Her her response was a bit startling. Oh, yes, honey, let's just keep killing for another day in Susa <laughs> and impale Haman's sons in public. Oh. You know, they've already been executed. Let's just impale them. It, I, that just, that note doesn't sound, doesn't resonate with the Esther that we've seen before, mm-hmm. right? It sounds like she was bent on extracting revenge. But we don't know her motivation, mm-hmm. you know, Another possible interpretation of that is, remember all those eunuchs and servants who loved her so much and kept her in the loop? Mm -hmm. Well, maybe the palace grapevine had let her know that another assault was planned for the next day. Hmm. You know, Susa was Haman's home court. Mm -hmm. Most of his supporters would be in the capital. Mm -hmm. So that's not Mm -hmm. beyond reason. And displaying the bodies of Haman's son in public would discourage other people from plotting <laughs> against the Jews and I, the king yeah, I think in so. the future. But that was a custom of the Persians already mm. because it inspires fear and compliance. Yeah. It is also where the Romans learned about crucifixion. Oh. That was a Persian kind of practice. So we don't know her motives. We don't know her thoughts. And it's almost like this account is sort of stuck in here to explain why there was one day of celebration of victory in the rural parts of the empire and two days of celebration in Susa. It's like, we have to explain this. Yeah, this is when I usually remind myself (laughs) that the way things were handled back then are not the way we usually handle them today. But, you know, even that's not a true statement anymore. Mm. Um, Things that are going on in the world are just hard to hard to look at sometimes. The one thing that is true is that God always prevails. One underlying theme that we have seen throughout this story is all the evil that comes from putting yourself and your desires above others. Those generational sins of partial obedience and greed were passed down and Haman's sons paid the price. Mm -hmm. It looks like the Jews had learned that lesson and were obedient to the letter by not greedily taking the things that they were not meant to have. And I love that Esther has obviously earned the respect of the king. That is truly remarkable. It is. It seems as though King Xerxes wants to give Esther whatever she wants. Yeah. Um, and this is probably also a good example of reaping what we sow. Mm-hmm. You know, Saul reaped something that, or sowed something that they ended up reaping generations later. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
Anyway, the last part of chapter 9 recounts the beginning of the celebration of Purim. Pur, of course, means lot in Hebrew, and Haman had set the day of destruction by casting lots. Now, that was divinely orchestrated Mm -hmm. to be far enough in the future to give this plot for the salvation of the Jews to be set in motion, right? Mm -hmm. So initially, the Jews were united in their victory, but they were divided in their celebration. It was either one or two days, depending on where they lived. So Mordecai wrote that the celebration should cover two days, occur annually, and they should celebrate their deliverance from their enemies with feasting, joy, and the giving of gifts. Then Esther wrote a letter confirming the details of the celebration and giving the purpose of it. Mm so that the Jews and their children and their children's children would always remember when God's people were delivered. Mm. Now, interestingly, this is one of two festivals, the other is Hanukkah, of the Jewish faith that wasn't established by God through Moses and the Torah. Mm. And it's the only one established by a woman. So Purim was a lively celebration of deliverance, and it involved the entire Jewish community. Um, the sending and receiving of food baskets, the giving of food to the poor so they could celebrate as well, meals shared with family and friends, and it's still celebrated today. Mm -hmm. And I have, my Jewish friend would say, it also involves a lot of wine. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, the Lord, nameless and behind the scenes in the book of Esther, has once again intervened to save his people. Mm -hmm. This time he just happened to use the lovely queen to do it. Mm. Now, what are we supposed to do with this book? The Bible, as we have discovered, is never shy about revealing the fatal flaws and sins of God's people. Mm-hmm. You know, just in our study, Eve was rebellious, Sarah was a manipulator, Rachel was spoiled and cruel, and, and then there's Esther. Her story isn't clean with a happy, happy ending. There are a lot of challenges in interpretation. There appears, appears to be more than just a little bit of moral ambiguity. In fact, most biblical scholars and historians don't believe she existed at all. Oh. So it's like a giant parable. Okay. That's what most people believe. So the book barely made it into the Jewish canon. Mm -hmm. It was the last of 24 books added because Mm -hmm. it was so controversial. And Martin Luther, the great Protestant uh, father— Wanted it removed from the Bible altogether, Hmm. along with Revelation, I might add. Oh. (laughs) So, you know, and as we've mentioned several times, God wasn't mentioned. We we do. We are left with several unanswered questions about Esther and this book. Mm -hmm. But I love that Mm -hmm. because the puzzles and the riddles and the unanswered questions keep us in a position of humbly seeking God's truth and looking for evidence of his providence and his sovereignty and his plan, rather than assuming we have it all figured Mm -hmm. out. Mm -hmm. And this, for me, is where Esther and our own lives intersect. You know, I can't really identify with her much, but, but I can with this. Our stories are like hers. They're full of highs and lows, good and bad, events we didn't or do not choose, Events and people we try desperately control, mixed and impure motives, you know. Mm -hmm. There are times in our lives when we see God's hand at work and times when we can't find Him no matter how hard we look or where we look, Mm -hmm. you know. Events where we step out in faith and and times when we're frozen in fear. 
In other words, like Esther, we see our best selves that God created us to be and also our less than best selves. Mm -hmm. So our lives are not always black and white. God's apparent silence or absence, quote-unquote, teaches us to see all the shades in between, and this keeps us seeking Him mm-hmm. because we all have a dark side. Yeah, You know, we, we've all, I don't know, gossip, lost your temper, um, vomited words of anger you immediately want to take back, mm-hmm. uh, had expectations that you tried to manipulate other people to meet, you mm-hmm. know, the list goes on and on. Mm-hmm. So the, the lesson to me is that our lives don't have to be, nor can they be, wrapped up in a tidy, happy package because we are human. Mm-hmm. We are messy. The bad news is that we need deliverance, and the good news is that we have a deliverer. Mm. He has made us part of his family. Like Esther, we have been chosen, marked, cleansed by living water, perfumed by the fragrant aroma of Christ, trained in godly living, and dressed in royal robes fit for the bride of the king. Mm. We live for someone greater than ourselves. Well, and that's all good news because we all have so much we need to be delivered from, (laughs) right? Yep. Uh, I think a great exercise this week is to actually spend some time and write down the things that we need to be delivered from. Focus on it. Mm. Uh, and some will be easy to admit, you know, worry, fear, pride, anger, you know, those ones that we all, we all know we have. It might be a little bit harder to be brutally honest with yourself and confess the sins like jealousy, lack of compassion or prejudice, mm-hmm. unforgiveness, just to name a few. But it's so important to name them and confess them release them so they don't have power over us. Yeah, and can I add one more? Sure. Incomplete obedience. Yes. Incomplete obedience. I think that's something we all need to think about in our own lives. Okay, one final thought about the book of Esther. One of the columns in our weekly study is titled, um, What Traits of God Are Displayed in These Verses, or something like that, Mm -hmm. right? Well, how do you identify the qualities of God when the story is so thoroughly pagan? God isn't even mentioned. And in fact, he seems strangely absent. Mm -hmm. Okay, this is a challenge that is going to develop our spiritual muscles because we, too, have times when God seems absent from Mm -hmm. our lives. I read a great quote by Rowan Williams. It says, silence is something to do with acknowledging a lack of power. Mm. The fact that God is silent in the book of Esther makes us acknowledge our lack of power, which is kind of a squeamy place to be in most of the time. Mm -hmm. But I learned this lesson on silence from my daughter, Cameron. Uh, The first time we were staying out at the ranch, she and Edward were both pretty little. And I heard in the middle of the night this thump off of bed and these little feet (laughs) coming down the hall. And it was Cameron. Mm-hmm. I said, Cameron, what's up? And she said, the silence is too loud. Oh. And I thought. Profound. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then I heard another. Shoop, dun, 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 dun. <laughs> that was Edward. He said, I just thought I'd come down and check on y'all. Yeah. So what, it, what occurred to me is, is that it's scary when we are constantly surrounded by sounds. Mm-hmm. Our brains are so wired for noise that we will even create white noise to keep our brains going in a Mm -hmm, direction, right? mm -hmm. 
So what w- the kids and I did was I said, okay, let's be real quiet and let's listen to the silence and see if it says anything to us. And sure enough, Edward said, I hear the wind in the grass and I hear that lizard scratching. We had a mountain boomer in the house. Uh, and Cameron said, I hear the singing of the stars. Mm. In silence, we discover something about ourselves and about God. And for God to communicate, He needs silence. Mm -hmm. So you know that's what my exercise before next week is going to be, is to just get quiet externally, internally, mentally, physically. Put every distraction aside and sink into the silence. This is going to be easier for some than for others. But be silent and listen until you hear the singing of the stars. You may be shocked by what you hear. Mm. That's a good word. Until next time.